Hello, you are listening to Everyday Creative People. I'm your host, Dina Adrians, and this podcast is for the doers, dreamers, and makers of the world. For anyone who wishes they had more time and freedom to play, who struggles with creative blocks, or who is trying to figure out how to make a living while making art, I'm here to stumble through the madness by your side. Once you've finished listening to today's show, please take a moment to subscribe to future episodes and rate the podcast, leave a comment, and tell a friend. You can join the community over in the Creative Playground Facebook group and find all the show notes at dinaadriance.com slash ecdpodcast. Now settle in, get comfy, and enjoy the show. I am super excited to introduce my guest this week. Um, I met Rebecca Kelly Golfman a few years ago when we were both working at Girl Be Heard, uh, which is a girl empowerment theater company based in Brooklyn, New York. And Rebecca, for the last, like, what, almost two years now, um, yeah, has sort of gone off her yeah. own and, and been doing all kinds of different things. And, you know, Rebecca, I'm, I'm actually going to, I'm not even going to get into your bio right now because I would love for you to just, like, articulate how would you in brief describe <laughs> your career? Like, like not, not your career as a whole, but like the, the things that you're doing right now, like if you could mm-hmm. just define that in like a couple sentences, how would you define it? <laughs> um, <laughs> I laugh because that is the question where I'm always, it, it is hard because I have done a lot of different things and operated in a lot of different worlds, putting things succinctly, um, it's difficult for me, but I guess I could say that I have been focused on, yeah, collaboration, tapping into my creativity, and using all those things towards, um, I'd say social, I'll say social justice, social justice, specifically racial justice, and how do all those things fit, fit together. Cool. Yeah. Um, so... Can you give just a taste of what that looks like in terms of the various different projects that you've been working mm-hmm. on? Yeah. Yeah. So the thing that has most of my attention right now is I recently created this platform, Black Abundance DK. And mm-hmm. the goal of that is to celebrate Black life in Brooklyn by uplifting Black businesses, creators, um, activists, and community members who are just keeping the borough really vibrant moving here. Is just specifically in Bed-Stuy, but in Brooklyn, it's really, really Bed-Stuy <laughs> has been <laughs> such a beautiful experience for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, right now, I'm a Create Change Fellow with the Laundromat Project, and the theme there is sanctuary. And I've been thinking a lot about this term, sanctuary, what does it mean? And I was realizing that it has really felt like a sanctuary moving to bed mm-hmm. because it is a historically Black neighborhood, and there is such a commitment to keeping that and to to having community and building connections. And so it's been glorious to get to know, you know, the people on my block who have lived here for a long time and connecting with them. Um, so that's been, been really great. And what is kind of behind Black Abundance CK um, is building out a platform for that community and to uplift it because um, it's not always uplifted on the outside in the ways that it should, the, the vibrance and the blackness of the neighborhood. So that's one thing. Um, and that really stems from a lot of the other work that I've done. But that's a, that's a big focus for me um, at the moment, that and my facilitation. So I am a facilitator. Those are the big buckets of things I'm doing right now, facilitating and doing <laughs> Black Abundance. And my facilitation life is 
Um, you know, I do trainings on race and racism, bringing uh, creativity into advocacy campaigns. Um, and I'm also a joker with theater of the oppressed and so I would put in that, that facilitation bucket. Mm-hmm. Cool. So, so facilitation and Black Abundance BK are like the two big buckets of things that you've been doing. Mm-hmm. Those are the big yeah. buckets, yeah. And There's uh, other stuff, but we'll, we'll keep it there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> For the moment. Yeah. Um, and, and Black Abundance, so it's interesting because I think um, Black Abundance BK so clearly to me as an observer into like it it is reflective of and supportive of so many of the other things that you're doing it seems like mm-hmm. um and uh but it it also my assumption and correct me if i'm wrong my assumption is that mm-hmm. black abundance bk is sort of a passion project of yours and you're not getting any financial uh oh, benefit no, from that okay. are you yeah, yeah. <laughs> no i get lots of benefits but not financial ones that is yeah true. <laughs> yeah so can you yeah. talk a little bit about like what is that um uh, is there sort of, do you see like a line between the financial income projects that you do and the like non-financial income projects that you do? And like, how do, how do those things sort of ebb and flow together for you? Hmm, what do you mean a line? Like, hmm, I guess like, okay. So from an external perspective, um, mm-hmm. it seems like Black Abundance BK is something that you get a lot of like personal uh, gratification from. Um, and it mm-hmm. seems like it's something that um, I imagine a lot of other people also get something out of. So it's a great like mm-hmm. service project. Um, mm-hmm. And I also imagine that it serves to, um, it, it's sort of an online platform for you um, where other people can can become familiar with you and the work that you're doing. Um, mm-hmm. So in that way, I would guess that it sort of helps to support the paid work that you're doing. Um, mm. But I'm just really interested in uh, the, like how people, particularly people like yourself who have like multiple different sources of income and creative yeah. practice and all of that, like how do all those bits and pieces fit together for you? Mm. Um, and, yeah, and particularly that's, that's like, like, like having sort of a quote unquote work-life balance and like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah like just right. what does that look like for you? Hmm. I like the way you, the way that you put that. It's so it's, it's very strategic. I don't know that I <laughs> have thought about how Black Abundance BK fuels like my per, my personal work life and feeds into that. It's interesting because actually the way I've been running both of them now they have been pretty separate. Um, I guess hmm. there's a there's a link in the sense that if you know me personally, my work personally, you know that Black Abundance BK is another thing that I am doing, but it really um, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily fuel directly the work that I'm doing, but it does flow from the work that I've done in the sense mm. that, um, you know, I, I say, and, and I feel it's true. I know I've observed in the many worlds that I've been in that the black community, you know, we are thriving and at our height when we're connected, respected and abundant. And so that was part of the origin for Black Abundance. So you know, I said, I spoke a little bit about my neighborhood love, but it's also providing a resource where people can you know, support other Black businesses. Like, you know, everyone knows about what happened with Starbucks and the few men that were arrested for existing. 
And after that, there was, you know, the big question, like, where, where are those local shops and where are the Black-owned shops? And it's a great question. And it's something, you know, I was excited to say, like, oh, I have all of these resources yeah. for us to be able to, you know, for the Black community and people who want, who also just are like, yes, I also want to support Black businesses. Um, here are a bunch of places that you can go. So it's also, it mm. does bring me joy to go and, like, highlight what I'm seeing, but I also see it very much as a resource for other people to like map out for themselves. Like if I want to spend my money all weekend at only black owned places, how can I do that? And they can look and they can see. And if they want to know, you know, who's, what are some of the movements going on in Brooklyn? You know, I'm interviewing people who they can see and look to and try to make connections with. So there's that part of it, which really stems, and I'm saying like that stems from my other work in the sense that, um, I don't know if <laughs> you wanted to get into this at a later point, but my background um, as a civil rights attorney I really found in that space because I was doing more like impact litigation, long-term kind of systems-based change. Um, that was a wonderful experience, but it also really highlighted for me how important it was to do work at a community level and to make sure that um, you know, our communities could stay connected so that a lot of the things that were coming up, you know, we would have the foreign student connections to prevent them from happening um, to begin with, which is a, yeah, yeah. And so that's, that's part of it. It flows partly from that, like focusing on community work. And then my other stuff that I, that I do now, um, I guess they just all see different parts of me. And I don't necessarily see them as connected, but I think an outside view, it probably is easier to draw those <laughs> connections. And for me, where I'm like, I'm all about Black Women's VK. And I'm really all about this little patient in my class. And I'm also, you know, here for Know Your Rights. They, they all exist within me, but I don't necessarily see them as um, align if that if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I mean, it seems like you're just. Other. It seems like you're pursuing things that you're excited about and yeah, <laughs> uh, seeing where they take you, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, so actually, this is a great transition uh, point because I wanted to actually step back for a moment and talk a little bit about like what was your path? How what? What is the mm -hmm. journey that you followed that got you to where you are today doing all these different things? Yeah, sure. So I think the journey begins in <laughs> Connecticut, <laughs> where I'm from. Um, I'm from Hartford, Connecticut. And I just, you know, I had great friends and family and everything there, but it didn't necessarily feel like a home, a place for, for thriving. I was just like a creative and energetic kid, and I had a lot of interest. <laughs> stayed um and that wasn't that place it felt a little bit rigid for me um so i you know after high school went to college in new york and focused on, on theater because um, that was that was always a home for me um at a young age at a young age was being in theater um making plays and creating in all these different ways building an ensemble and doing all that just really fed me and so going you know being in new york and focusing on that also fed me too and there was a lot um a lot here, but I, I, you know, I think maybe other people will be able to relate to this too. While I was in that field, I was in theater uh, as an actor and looking at focusing on musical theater. Um, I, I didn't then see the connection between who I could be as an artist and who I could be as an activist and how those things could fit together. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that I did see it, I felt like, oh gosh, you have to wait so long and have so many things go right to have the kind of control over your career to make it exclusively change-making and sustainable on its own, like to, to, be, to be the Oprah's and then Beyonce's <laughs> of the world. But that, uh, that was how I was perceiving it then. Like, I just don't know if I can wait. And, you know, I, 
Mm-hmm. So that was really bolstered for me after school. I was working at the public theater for a little while and getting to watch some of the amazing pieces of theater that were going up there. And I would feel so inspired. And I remember having that moment of feeling, you know, I'm watching this piece. It's really making me want to take action. And I'm going to do that. But then also at, then, at that time, I was still kind of you know, searching, like, how can I be an activist, an actor? Can I? What does it mean? And I just realized that there, there's that gap of hope between yourself on the stage and the person receiving it and saying, okay, like, I really believe in what's happened here. And I'm hoping that it has landed with you and that you're going to internalize what you have just seen on the stage or whatever has shifted within you and take an action. But maybe they won't. <laughs> or maybe they will yeah. take an action, but you don't really know what direction that action will be in. And so I felt like, man, I don't, I, I fell into that gap a little bit, right? I just felt like, I don't want to hope that other people catch my vibe. Like I want to catch my vibe and be out here doing things and inviting other people to join me and not, not waiting and depending, um, which isn't to say that that is not important because it absolutely is. And those sparks are so key to, to catch people in an audience and to catch people through art. But at that time, it was too big of a leap for me for where I was um, in my life at that time. And so I started getting into organizing. I did some work with um, the Obama campaign and the DNC to get Obama elected, which was back then. Um, and that was a really fulfilling process for me. And on that, for me and on that journey, I decided to go to law school so I could have an understanding of like what our system of government was, you know, if I wanted to make some changes and where do I want to affect those? How can I get in? Like having a deeper understanding of the way things already are, if I'm going to dream about how I want them, how they could be. So that was another gap that I felt like was mm. there for me. Um, so I did, and I went there and I focused on education and civil rights. But again, I said creativity and collaboration, and it's just, it stayed true for me there too. Being in law school, um, I learned a tremendous amount about that, about the systems, about the history you know, of oppression. That's not what they set up, but that's what I wanted to learn. <laughs> so that's what I dug into um, and how the law has supported things that I have or haven't supported that I do or do not think are, are positive. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I needed my creativity there. Those things were wonderful, but there was not a lot of space for creativity and I could feel myself like it's hard to explain but like being so drained being drained mm. it's as though like part of me was just wasting away a little bit because I'd gone from you know singing acting dancing and exploring yeah. that even when I wasn't <laughs> doing it like regularly I still was doing that on my own and then being in law school your time is so taken I wasn't really so I was like what am, how am I gonna take this off so my first year I started a social justice film series I like rallied a bunch of the um, you know, professors and a few students and we had a big social justice film series mm-hmm. um, where we brought in a documentary and I prepared these questions and breakout um, activities for people which again I didn't have the, the time necessarily but it was so necessary for me yeah. that I just made that time because like, I just needed to be experiencing things in that way I also curated an art show while I was there as part of the diversity committee there and um <laughs> There was definitely a lack of racial diversity, but on top of that, there was just a lack of diversity around a mentality because it's such a rule-based place. People can get very rigid. Mm-hmm. And I felt like we need to get some light in these halls. So <laughs> I met a lot of amazing artists um, who are in Hartford. And Janetta Miller is one, she's an amazing quilt worker. And she, uh, I don't know if that's the correct like title for what she would say, but she makes beautiful things with quilts and she's phenomenal. And I, she was a really great help to me as well as finding other artists 
So we had this art show in the library and had an opening for it. We made a point to invite not only, you know, the law students, but the people in Hartford because hmm. the school had kind of a, you know, we are the school in the city, right. but we don't really connect with the city. Which, which is I was so not, common you know, in higher that. education institutions. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was just not about it. So that's <laughs> 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 we encourage all the artists to bring everyone in. That they you know, invite their people and... And that was a really magical and a great experience, a really great kickoff again to like having conversations about about a lot of different things, a range of different things. But so that that's how I'll, I'll synthesize my law school experience with those two big things. Um, and after law school, I worked as a civil rights attorney in D.C. at the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. And I was focused there on the school to prison pipeline and dismantling that. Um, I would actually say even the even that position like is rooted in creativity in the sense that it was a my inroads there like the way that I got that position was that it's a fellowship position so they put out a call it's you know nationwide this is a very prestigious fellowship I felt thrilled to get it they put this call out nationwide like who has something that we can work on a civil rights issue that we don't see um you know or that we're not already working on if you may have seen it but we're not working on it currently what is that issue and how should we respond to it and through my work focusing on civil rights and education, and I spent some time um, at the Department of Education in their civil rights um, division, or the Division of Educational Equity, you know, I learned about and the school to prison pipeline and the fact that there were police officers in schools and kids were getting arrested in schools and it was mostly black and brown students. And you know, my you know this, and I'll share this for everyone, that my mother integrated her high school in the 60s and that was a real, we all know the things that flow from that, but yeah. seeing that she and so many other people put in so much time and energy to try to make it so that our schools would be a path line for success to see that they were direct funnel to prison. was just completely disgusting and couldn't stand. So I really wanted to say, okay, this is something that we should focus on. So I like picked that and came up with this project of how we could do it both by working within the community um, looking at, you know, impact litigation, but also creating resources um, for people to use on their own to be able to challenge the school to prison pipeline in their own ways. So there was some creativity in like, what is a holistic way to respond to this? What, how can they leverage the resources? They haven't thought about it before. So you're going to sit and think about all the different ways you can do it. So there's, mm. there was that. And then the way that I executed that, um, some of the work that I did, a large portion of it was in Chicago. And I connected with a great um, youth arts group, Kumba Links to be a part of it and they already had great um like poetry around you know their experiences with school to prison pipeline and so they were the people who sorry ended up organizing a big community gathering where we focused on sharing information and strategizing about how to move forward but kumba links and their performances were key to that because it unlocked people's inner rigidity you know the same way i was saying that it is really important to you know have the arts in this traditional way like that it is it taps into the intangible so that that it was really beautiful to see that and to see how that could happen and function and support you know discussion that's about policies <laughs> being yeah. rooted in slam poetry is dope so it's <laughs> definitely something that i yeah took away and you know now i'm here in new york doing that like finding all of the ways that the arts and activism do come together and can come together and have really always then more hand in hand and the idea that the arts need to be something separate from social your socially engaged life or your community-based life it's really been created by institutions and isn't true every community and every space yeah. has been using the arts and creativity to thrive since forever 
And so I feel yes. like really blessed to have been on that journey and to see it now and to see now like that with way more clarity. Hmm. Hmm. So as you went on this journey of sort of exploring these different things that you felt really passionate about and drawn to, Mm -hmm. um, and trying to figure out the best way for them to all integrate in your life, um, Mm -hmm. what would you say were some challenges that you faced along that journey? Of integrating all of these things? Yeah. You know, I think I just, uh, I've been touching on it a little bit. I think that the, it kind of also goes into what you were asking before about first thing. You said work-life balance. And I was like, yeah. interesting. Do I, <laughs> how am I having that? I think that, um, I do, I do. I'm working on it. And I think one of the biggest things has been self-care. And this connects to your question in the sense that my self-care really is um, tapping in to, mm. you know, myself as a singer, myself as a dancer, myself as a creator. Right. And uh, I think the challenge has been accepting that part of myself when it's not in a formalized uh, space. Like, I think people, you know, if anyone else went to, like, so when I was in college, I said I focused on theater, but that was my major was musical theater. And I think a lot of times I've talked to other people, maybe, you know, your listeners will relate when you go to school for something. Um, sometimes you walk away with this false understanding, like if you aren't doing it the way that it was told to you in that place, Mm -hmm. then you're not really doing it. Like you can't call yourself a dancer. You can't, unless you dance in the way you're told by the institution, unless you can, you know, respond to someone else's definition of dancing or someone else's definition of singing. And so for me, when I did start to step away or reintegrate in a new way, I think I had a little bit of a, I don't know if it was judgment of myself or resistance to say like, yeah, girl, you need to be out here singing. Like (laughs) you're a singer. When you sing, you're a singer. When you're dancing, you're a dancer and you need to just like own that and be about that. So you can continue to create and have it in your life in a way that feeds your soul. And I think the more that I've been liberating myself from this idea of like, if I'm not professionally singing, acting, dancing, then I'm not doing those things. I've been able to integrate them into my life in a more seamless way because it's how I move through the world. Like it is, I move through the world <laughs> through movement. Yeah. I move through the world <laughs> through song. And so now being able to, you know, as a facilitator, like, oh, you know what this moment needs is a song. I don't need to feel like it needs to be a show tune. Like it can be <laughs> what it needs to be. And I can use my life as a singer in that space. And when I've had a day and I'm feeling stressed, it's super important that I take that energy and alchemize it and turn it into something useful by mm-hmm. dancing, you know, in my apartment for however many hours. Um, but also like even following from that, a good friend of mine, she's starting a um organization for young girls and women to explore creativity called the Bloom Sisterhood Society. And she is creating a promotional video for that and asked me um, to do, to choreograph movement for her for this, for all the people in it for the video. And at Mm. first I was like, oh, I'm not a dancer. I don't know that I could do that. So she asked me because I created a short choreographic piece for her for for (laughs) something that I was doing, but like, oh, for fun. So I didn't catalog this, I guess, you know? Or like, and she's been with Mm. me dancing and like, she knows what I, who I am and what I do. So she asked me based on her experiences of me. And it was just really interesting for me to hear my inner monologue of like, oh, I don't know if I can do that because I'm not a dancer. She's asking me because she's 
dance with you and see you <laughs> choreograph movements. So like you don't have to, this self-doubt voice can just go somewhere because <laughs> it's not necessary or useful. And then it was like allowing, you know, going through time and having those conversations with myself, with myself up until that point was what allowed me to like, yes, hear the inner monologue, but not give into it and say like, okay, I am going to do that. And mm-hmm. to do it for her. And it was so, it was such a magical experience. I mean, at the end of the day, she was like, oh, it's so great to, because I didn't share all that inner monologue with her at the time. So then after the shoot, she was like, it was so amazing to see you in your element like that, like working with everybody and, you know, giving them all of this choreography and they were able to take it. And it was such a great, beautiful sharing. And I was just like, yeah, it was great for me to see myself in that in my element too because I didn't know that that was my element because I hadn't let myself mm. fully explore it because I decided I wasn't a dancer because it didn't wow. fit into the institutional space of what definition of that was. I think limiting myself from that has been the biggest way that I've been able to incorporate all of these different parts of myself into the different different work that I do. Mm. Mm. Okay. So I totally, one of the questions that I wanted to ask you, <laughs> which completely mm. relates to this, um, <laughs> is at what point did you realize that this life that you're living with all these different things that you're doing uh, was a career that you could create for yourself? <laughs> are you like, saying it like that right now? <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I think that when did I realize it was a career? I mean, that's such a good question. I guess I'm in process of continuously realizing that. Like every time I get a new client, honestly, for facilitation, or every time someone approaches me for something, I'm like, great, <laughs> this can work, you know? And I think it's also a part of, you know, necessity, if I'm being honest, because the places that I have worked have all been, you know, they're wonderful places on their own. But it's for me, I just realized that I, because I want to consistently be integrating all these different parts of myself, mm-hmm. and I am always, yeah, create, creating, not to be so on the nose with your podcast, but I am. I'm always <laughs> like thinking about these things, like how can we, okay, this is great. Is it working? How do we, should we reinvent this? If we want to, what is it like? In what way? Um, that having multiple outlets and multiple people to connect with, it's just more my speed, more my style of working. It's exciting for me to meet with new people and collaborate and think about like, you know, what would be the best program to develop for you? Hmm. Um, you know, you, you reach out to me as a facilitator and you're going to tell me, you know, your needs. Um, and then I can sit with those and think about what I already have on the table and how can I put those things together to specifically match your needs. And then we're in the room together and based on what I'm getting from everyone, how can I hold everyone's energy and either continue down the path that we planned or maybe we need to go down a different lane. I mean, that kind of freedom that I get from doing these things and just solidify for me that it's a career that mm. I want. Um, and yeah, the fact that people are paying me for it is great. That's a great, <laughs> that's another assurance <laughs> that, that I can give it as a career because if they went, then I know I'd still be trying to make it happen, but then I would have way less work-life balance. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so did you, like, when you decided, because um, like just for all the listeners out there, like you and I were working at Girl Be Heard at the same time and sort of at similar times decided that it was time for us to move on and do our own things. And I'm curious, like what, what did that process look like for you of recognizing, okay, this full-time job is no longer working for me. Hmm. I know I want to create something for myself that is more flexible, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, from like 
that point of recognition to the point of like, hey, this is actually something that I'm doing and it's working mm-hmm. for me? Like, what, what was that journey like? Well, yeah, that's a great question. So the journey um, for me, it was actually after Really Heard, I was working part-time with uh, Theater Via Press. Mm-hmm. NYC, so I was so, so and can you actually just give a little bit of a background of what Theater of the Oppressed is? Oh, sure. Yeah, because I mentioned it earlier. So Theater of the Oppressed um, is a methodology that was created in Brazil by Augusto Boal. Uh, he was a theater maker and an activist and created this methodology for um, the people who are most impacted by an issue, telling their own stories about that issue through theater and through that performance, having a community organizing uh, experience. So more literally, people put on plays about the oppression that they're facing. And it's, it's a really a question to the audience of what strategies do you think we can all try to use to fight the oppression that you just saw on the play? And so people who are watching get on stage and they, instead of sharing the solutions, like, oh, I think you should talk to your boss, they come into the play and they actually try to talk to the boss. And the actors are all prepared to improv so that the actors can see is that a good strategy? Do I want to try that? And I think another byproduct is that the audience can say, uh, oh, I thought everyone could just go talk to their boss and get what they wanted, but it looks like maybe sometimes that doesn't work. <laughs> so there's a lot of learning <laughs> and community uh, connection that comes from those plays. And TUNYC is a New York-based um, organization that uses those methodologies all over the city to build plays with different community members about the different things that they're facing. Cool. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, no problem. So that's the year of the press, and I was working there after Girl Be Heard as a joker. A joker is a person who um, works with the community members to devise a play. I work um, with youth in Crown Heights that youth organizing to save our streets to build plays around their experiences pushing for um, anti-gun violence in the community. And then I also, though, was working as, up until recently, as creative advocacy coordinator. So in that role, I was after you know the plays looking at okay so here are the things that came up in the play here are the solutions the actors were excited about how can we connect with other organizations who are doing some of that advocacy and work alongside them through our plays through you know creativity to move forward the legislation which was like a perfect um mm-hmm. overlap of the things that i've done so we would have yeah. conversations about that and connect with other people and so that was you know a fantastic experience um, but i recently left the office portion of that. So I still joker, but I'm not creative advocacy coordinator. And all to say what I was doing there, um, that was what I was doing part time. And on the, with the rest of my time, I was facilitating on my own as well and, and teaching race, arts and activism as an adjunct professor at Wagner College. Okay. Um, so doing both of those things. So I was basically, so now I just recently left the office. And because of the time that I put into my own facilitation practice on the side, I now am in a place where I can make that a career. Like mm. I was, you know, kind of joking earlier and saying, like, oh, people are paying me, but but really, it's been a slow <laughs> rollout of you know smaller clients and then bigger right. And you and bigger were and you were hours. teaching at Wagner for like a mm-hmm. year before you actually left your full time job, right? Uh, yeah, as an adjunct. As an adjunct. Starting yeah. before that, I'm leaving yet more for my to focus on my facilitation. So. Mm-hmm. Oh, I mean, the major point I just wanted to make was like the transition yeah. was one where it wasn't like I was able to immediately start doing the facilitation. It was more like, excuse me, I want to deliberately start building up my practice so that I can be in a place that I can make this more of my career. And now I feel like I'm at that place. And so I'm, I'm now I would say I'm more like really stepping out entirely on my own and just 
focusing on facilitation and teaching and back abundance UK. Is there a typical shape to your day or week? Or is it totally constantly changing? Mm-hmm. Um, it's constantly changing. I'm pausing. I'm like, see, no, it's changing. I mean, there are similar elements, <laughs> which is, um, you know, talking to, I hate, I hate this for clients. It's so distancing, so I won't use it. Talking to different people who are interested in facilitating with me. I like to, you know, have a phone call or meet in person and talk about what it is that their hopes are for the programming. So that's, that makes its way into my day. Um, I have trainings that are pretty set. Um, but I also have separate elements of those that I can pull and paste together based on what the initial conversation is. So then depending on where I am in a process, I'm also thinking about that, like based on what I heard from someone, what are the different pieces that we want to put together. And I create, I create games, um, theater games, but also just engaging games. So a lot of my time, you're know, who walks in on me, is like, is, you know, you might be like, well, what's happening? Like, I will be like performing these games for myself. Because I'll <laughs> create something and I'm like, and then how would this go? And where would this connect? So it's a lot of me talking to myself and watching the around um, when I'm creating, creating and refining a game. Um, so, so that's a part of my day. Um, Reading and saying, uh, going to professional development things, because I think it's important to constantly be aware of new information and practices, um, so that I Sorry, can say best of all that. Again, you said you said I think it's important to constantly uh, be, be growing. Aware. Okay, yeah. and learning more information. So I like to make sure that I'm doing that. You know, going to professional development workshops, or going to workshops. I'm reading, seeing, you know, <laughs> what's going on out there so I can continue to always grow and be the best version of, of myself that I can, you know, seeing which things work for me. Um, so that's part of my day. And Black Abundance PK, a lot, I mean, that's, you know, going out, uh, that's, I, it incorporates into my life a little bit more, um, you know, if I'm finding a place to work because I've, I'm not part of like a mm-hmm. WeWork or a wing or anything. So I generally will try to go to a black owned place and then I'm there it's amazing I'll take photos and talk to who's there and put that place up um so that's part of that for black women CK and then sometimes my day is interviewing people for that or finding my interviews or um yeah and then theater via press is preparing for a play preparing for a rehearsal so it looks different (laughs) I guess you don't want to hear all of the individual things that I do but it's a a bunch of yeah preparing facilitation finding places and interviewing for Black Abundance CK, and then preparing for rehearsals for Feed of the Oppressed. And if I am doing some other creative project like I did for the Bloom Sisterhood Society, then there's, you know, the dancing at home, the recording or the creating of that. Yeah. Long do, you ever, <laughs> do you ever um, experience, like, do you ever feel like you are experiencing a creative block or, like, like it seems like a lot of what you're doing is sort of feeding into each other and creating sort of ongoing inspiration. Um, but I'm curious mm-hmm. if, if in the process of doing any of those things, um, you find yourself getting stuck. I haven't, you know, honestly. And I think maybe that's in part, it's not my profession. So it is something hmm. um, that comes to me in true inspiration. I mean, creativity is, I mean, it is my profession in a sense. My <laughs> traditional arts are not my my profession. So no one's, I guess no one's demanding of me mm. creative dance piece right now. 
you know, write me a song right. right now. Like that's not my reality. I don't, I don't, no one's putting out that pressure on me. And so uh-huh. I don't have a block in the sense that, you know, I really feel fortunate that what has happened for me is I get inspiration. You know, I sit with my plants and it's in a particular way and I have a whole idea come to me for how I would use my body to explore what's going on with that plant or whatever <laughs> other story it is. But those things come to me and then I'm able to create them and offer them to different experiences. You know, either mm-hmm. something I want to create or something I want to co-create. Mm-hmm. But that's really... Um, a, pr- a creativity privilege in this world. No one's requiring me by a certain date to create anything. Um, so I don't have any blocks. I've just been really excited yeah. to let the thing inspiration flow through me, honestly. It's been really glorious. And I feel like now more than ever, because I've stopped judging myself, like I've stopped mm. saying, oh, that idea came to you, but you're not the person to realize it, even though it came to you in your mind. <laughs> you're not <laughs> the person to actualize it because you're not a singer or an answer. Like now it's just like, no. Let's create it. So it, it felt like floodgates for me, actually. Like wow. so many things are coming to me all the time because I think I was suppressing them more. And when I was mm. focused on traditional advocacy, I was like, oh, there's no time for this. Sometimes I would feel that way. It depends where I was at. Like, there's not time for this right now. But I was just constantly here, you know, knocking on the inside all these ideas. Um, yeah. So it feels like floodgates. And in terms of facilitation, because it's always new people, I find that inspiring. So I don't feel like, oh, I can't create for them. It's like, oh, that conversation was maybe a little more rigid than I'm used to. That's interesting. What could I create mm. around that? You know, <laughs> so if that doesn't block me, it's more inspiring than anything. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like with the facilitation piece, it's like you're usually trying to solve a problem. And so then it's it's about the problem yeah. solving, which sort of spurs the inspiration. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I would use problem solving only okay. because the only because the trainings I do are around um, racial justice and like connecting mm-hmm. um, based on that, and that is the solving of that. I could not claim to be solving racism. I guess I, well, no, I mean, I guess what I, mean is, what I mean when I say problem solving is like yeah. the example that you just gave of. Um, you know, oh, that mm-hmm. conversation was more rigid than I'm used to. Like, how can I, uh, like, how can I do things yeah, to, yeah. to open it up or whatever? Like that kind of problem solving, totally. um, rather totally. than like on a bigger plane of like, I'm solving yeah, yeah. the problem of racial <laughs> justice. Yeah, this, this is a great podcast. I'm going to tell everyone how we, how we solve this problem. <laughs> That's what we're actually going to talk about. Then. No, yeah, yeah, definitely. So it's definitely problem solving. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so I have one uh, last question for you before we wrap up, which is just that you, um, I think it was on your on your website that you describe yourself in this way, but you you describe yourself as a creative advocacy consultant. Um, mm. And I would love for you to tell me what does that mean? Yeah, sure. That means, so when I, uh, as a creative advocacy consultant, what I'm aiming to do is share with other people what is, I've learned through, through my journey mm-hmm. of how much there is a national synergy between the arts, creativity, and advocacy and how necessary they are and how overlapping they are. And so I um, can help people figure out, you know, you have a particular piece and this is what it's about, um, what are the next steps you might want people to take and how can you build that into this program that you've created now? You know, this is your dance piece. Do you want 
to talk through with me, um, you know, if you're, if you're, okay, I'm being a little more specific. Like if someone's making um, a piece about um, income inequality in a particular area, maybe, and, and it's going to be entirely just through dance and it may not be as linear or as obvious. Um, you know, we can have a conversation about, well, how do you want to do, do you want to build in things that make it a little bit more clear? Do you want something to be in the program? Do you want to have a Q&A? Are there things that you want to have as projections behind that can support your message? But really, what are ways that your piece can be used to not only inspire, but also inform and direct people towards action afterwards so that no one else needs to fall into that gap mm. that I feel like I fell in? I really want to, to, support people who want, you know, artists and artistic institutions who want their work to be action oriented and yeah. but also don't want to feel like they have to do something other than dance. Because I just, after, especially after the election, I feel like so many people creative and artists that I know were like, I think I'm going to go to law school or maybe what I should do mm. is, you know, I can't be a dancer anymore. And I, I don't think, I think that's extreme. That's an extreme, you know, if, you, if that really is true and it moves you then of course, but there are ways there is a natural synergy in her, like a long, you know, history of that. Um, I'm going to share one story on this that yeah. I think is really powerful, which is um, this Jonah Rebellion. This was a slave rebellion, mm -hmm. um, a rebellion of enslaved people. And one of the key things that happened during that Jonah Rebellion was the use of the drum. People were banging on the drum. Mm. And these people from West Africa who would hear that drum and would come out and like recognize it as a rallying cry and you know came together and while that wasn't ultimately um I mean it had its successes obviously but it didn't have like the ultimate success what did come from that it was so powerful and so threatening that following that rebellion there were they issued the slave codes and the slave codes specifically outlawed drumming and instruments in the same way that they outlawed weapons and to me to equate those things to the mm. Stoner Rebellion and I'm sure other mm. other rebellions is to recognize the power the activating activist power of a drum of music wow. of connection in that way yeah or when you think about like capoeira the people who were using who were who, who were supposedly dancing but in fact what they were doing was learning how to fight and sharing with each other you know other enslaved people here's how we can fight and it looked like dance and it was dancing you still can learn to dance but it was also a concrete way of rebelling and there's so many that's true so mm. many other cultures where the song and music the dance were an act of rebellion and not only rebellion but an act of remembering who we are remembering our culture yeah. and that's really revolutionary too and yes. so it's super important that, yeah it's <laughs> super important to me when i'm talking to people it's like yeah let's talk about how we can highlight that and what you're already doing rather than like you know you shouldn't dance anymore how do we do all of those things? Because dancing is liberation, singing is liberation, all those things are super important to keep us rooted in ourselves. Um, yes. so, that's, so that's creative advocacy consulting. <laughs> what a great place to end everything. this conversation on. <laughs> <laughs> um, Rebecca, thank you so much for doing this interview today. Uh, so much fun uh, just hearing about all of these things. And um, the last thing request that I have for you is just to share mm -hmm. um, where can people find you if they want to uh, access your work. Great, yeah. So to access me as a facilitator and creative advocacy consultant, and to see what I have like this upcoming movement storytelling piece called Inheritance mm -hmm. about intergenerational yeah. trauma, healing from that. 
That's all at RebeccaKellyG.com. That's my website. And then my Instagram handle is RebeccaKelly underscore G. Um, uh, that's Instagram. And then for Black Abundance BK, the website is BlackAbundanceBK.com. And again, the Instagram is at BlackAbundanceBK. That's awesome. where you can find me. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Thank you, Dina. This is so great. Thank you so much for listening to Everyday Creative People. If you enjoyed today's show, please take a moment to subscribe to future episodes and rate the podcast, leave a comment, and tell a friend. Drop me a note on Facebook at Dina Adrian's Coaching and join the community over in the Creative Playground Facebook group. I'd love to hear from you. See you again next Monday. Same bat time, same bat channel.